Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We continue our study in the Gospel of John, asking who is this king who in glory draws near? We have been studying rather slowly through Pilate's trial of Jesus and then a number of important questions that he asks. What have you against Jesus? Um, Are you a king then? And uh, what is truth? Today we come to chapter 19, and he asks this question, um, where are you from? He was not expecting to come face to face with his maker and sentence him to be crucified. What, what does this mean? What is the meaning of the, all of these things? Let's continue our study of the Gospel of John, reading together in chapter 19, starting in verse 1. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. And Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Had Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to him, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. And he went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as these things have been written for our instruction, so we pray that you would rewrite the truth of these things and the power of them into our minds and our hearts and our lives this day, that our hearts might all the more be captivated by Christ crucified, in whose name we pray, amen. During the First World War, Winston Churchill left his cabinet position and... Uh, went and served as a major on the western front of that war in the trenches. Churchill had fought in other conflicts before. He once again distinguished himself and won the admiration of his men and even a few of his political rivals back home. One day, while Churchill was in uh, a sandbagged shelter where he stayed in the trenches, he received word that a general, uh, indeed the, uh, the corps commander, was coming to the area and wanted to see him. The general's car would meet him at a certain crossroads. So Churchill set off on a muddy three-mile hike under German observation most of the way. The battle was raging that day, and the shriek of enemy shells was constant. Nevertheless, as Churchill wrote, he and his staff officer toiled and sweated on. Well, when Churchill finally arrived at the crossroads where the general's car was supposed to be meeting him, He was astonished to be told that the general had changed his mind. What was to be the point of this meeting? He asked the staff officer. "Uh, Oh, nothing in particular, he replied. 
he just thought as he was coming up this way that he would like to have a talk with you. Churchill was furious. Burning with anger, he began, as he put it, the long, sliding, slippery, splashing waddle back to the trenches. And he cursed the thoughtless general for having wasted his day and making him hike so far under such dangerous and miserable conditions for nothing. And at last he got back to his shelter, which he found no longer existed. For five minutes after he left, it was penetrated by an artillery shell and utterly destroyed, and his fellow officer with whom he shared it was obliterated. Churchill recorded his thoughts that day. Suddenly, he said, I, I felt my irritation against the general pass completely from my mind. All sense of grievance departed in a flash. And as I walked to my new quarters, I reflected on how thoughtful it had been of him to wish to see me again and to show courtesy to a subordinate when he had so much responsibility on his shoulders. His entire attitude toward the general changed in that instant when he realized that that general's summons had in fact saved his life. Well, in a similar way, this is how people's minds are changed today and changed forever about the cross of Christ. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, which is to Jews a stumbling block, and to Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Look there at that cross and see, if you can, Christ dying for you, bearing your curse, that that hideous instrument of torture, which becomes then a magnificent symbol of God's love and grace and peace and comfort. The message of the cross, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, says Paul, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so I would like to help you today to get such a sight by faith of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ from this passage before us to explain what is going on and perhaps even to change your mind about it today. As the chapter opens, we read once again that Pilate declares Jesus innocent. He's already pronounced it. He pronounces it again and again. Nevertheless, he has Jesus scourged, hoping to satisfy the bloodlust of the Jewish rulers who want him dead. The soldiers mock the Lord and beat him and crown him with thorns. And finally, Pilate shows him to the crowd, Again, not in a cruel way, but in a desire that he might be able to let him go after this. Uh, verse 4, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. He thought that by punishing him harshly and then mocking him before the crowd that he would satisfy them. But Pilate miscalculated it. They only cry, Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate says, You take him and crucify him. I find no fault. We have a law, they say, and according to our law, he must die for he's made himself the Son of God. And Pilate fears when he hears this word. It gave him a sudden pause. I mean, Jesus was known as a prophet and a miracle worker of a people whom he despised, uh, Pilate despised. But the idea that this was the Son of God, it suddenly unsettled him. We don't know exactly why. I mean, Pilate had been in the man's presence. Maybe he did have some sense that 
This one was more than he appeared. Maybe he was what he said, a king, not of this world. He takes him back inside the praetorium and asks him, where are you from? This is an important question. Jesus has been emphasizing throughout this book the answer. Time and time again, uh, maybe ten times now, he has made this point. That he is from heaven. He said, for instance, in the last chapter, chapter 16, I should say, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I have come down from heaven, he says elsewhere, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Other religions have their founders, Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, L. Ron Hubbard. They have their doctrines. They have their teachers. None of them has claimed to be the maker of heaven and earth. Like Pilate, people today don't expect to find in Jesus the Lord of all. Even Christians don't appreciate or understand the significance of what it means that this one is the one who's being condemned to die. I'm going to have just one main point for you today, and then we'll think about what it means. One main point, which is, sin is man putting himself in the place of God. Salvation is God putting himself in the place of man. Say that one more time. Sin is man putting himself in the place of God. Salvation is God putting himself in the place of man. Let me explain it to you this way. Uh, Let me begin by explaining the difference between this and the accursed religion of the Pharisees, or Pharisaism, we might say. And by the way, did you know that Josephus wrote there were only 3,000 Pharisees in Israel among the people in that day? Only 3,000, a small sect, but important, no doubt. And what most set it apart was their distinctive teachings about how they handled sin. They redefined God's law in such a way, with a vast number of rules and understandings, so that they could handle sin, so that that people could keep the law. And people could say, I've kept it from my youth. They redefined the law so that people could keep it. And when they broke it, When they did something bad, they taught that they could atone by balancing the scales of justice, by doing something good. Uh, As the rabbis put it, deeds of loving kindness. Okay, the scales would be balanced again. And I think that has something to do, by the way, with why, of all the ways that Judaism could have continued, it, 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 it took the religion of the Pharisees. And Judaism today, if you don't know, looks back to those Pharisaical rabbis, they call the sages, that modern Judaism, or at least Orthodox Judaism, is derived largely from Pharisaism. For when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the legions of Roman general Titus, there was no longer any possibility of having blood sacrifice to atone in worship. There was no altar. There was no sacrifice to be made. There was no atonement for sin. 
But that didn't trouble the Pharisees because they didn't need such sacrifices. They taught people that they could keep the law or that if they broke it, it could be handled by a few good things. They had long before constructed a religion that required no sacrifice for sin, only obedience to the law or balancing the scales of justice by doing good if need be. And so when the temple was gone, that little sect became Judaism. Very interesting. Now God, for his part, has a very, very different evaluation of the weight of the sin of this world that can't be balanced quite so easily. No, when we consider sin as it is in the world, we come to a vastly different calculation, even without God's Word helping us. We consider the mass of bloody conflicts that rage and have raged on every continent of the world, the vast iniquity and the flood of crime of immense proportion, the Lord reminding us that besides all this, He regards all hateful, spiteful, mean-spirited, cruel, envious, jealous, haughty thoughts toward others, lustful thoughts. These are sins only of the same kind as assault and murder, robbery and adultery. And over all of this, well, R.C. Sproul put it well, sin is cosmic treason. It is cosmic treason that even in the least sin, we are in principle throwing off the law of the creator of the universe. That even in the least sin, We are defying God's right to rule and reign over us. Even in the least sin, we are usurping to ourselves the power and authority that God says is his alone. Sin is treason against the everlasting king. My point in just sketching these things out for you is that sin is not so easily counterbalanced in the scales of justice. If we want something to take away the sin of the world, a few deeds of loving kindness are not going to do. Redefining the law so that it is not so substantial can never get us very far. Even as Christians, we hardly have a concept of what it means for the creature to rebel against the Creator. Even as Christians, I say. I mean, think of it this way. Suppose we were to go outside after service and one of the kids of our congregation is out there pulling a worm apart. You'd be annoyed. You'd say, don't don't do do that. Put that down. That's a creature of God. Don't be cruel. I mean, even to a worm, right? You'd be displeased. You wouldn't be appalled. You wouldn't say, you evil, wicked little boy. How could you do such a horrible thing? You wouldn't lie sleepless at night with nightmares thinking about this. It's just a worm. But if the boy were torturing a a cat, now wouldn't that be worse? That really would be terrible, at least most of you think so. That would be an evil act because on the scale of dignity, a cat is a higher creature than a worm. Now what if a boy was torturing and pulling apart a baby? you would shriek with horror. You would say, you evil, wicked little boy. That would give you nightmares for such an evil thing because it was an offense against a human being. What then is an offense against God? Against God, an infinite being. 
It's the same action in every case, but the heinousness of the sin depends upon the being offended. And this is important when we come to this question of what has Jesus done? He's come as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. What can possibly balance out the sin of the world on the scales of justice? The sin of the world is quite a lot of sin. And the only thing that's going to be able to balance that is if the Maker Himself comes and suffers. And if Christ is going to be made sin for us, the one thing that should not surprise us is that He would suffer such bloody violence for it, a punishment that indeed fits the crime that was committed. For nothing short of a cruel and utterly unjust humiliation of the Son of God and a cursed death on the cross could possibly begin to avail to satisfy the sins of this world. But God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. One man writes, the Bible never counsels indifference to the forces of darkness, only resistance. But The Bible supports no illusions that we can defeat them ourselves. Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinkers who say we can fix things if we try hard enough. Nor does it disagree with the pessimists who only see a dystopian future. The message of Christianity is instead, things really are this bad and we can't heal or save ourselves. Things really are this dark. Nevertheless, there is hope. For if the maker of this world has come to make things right, to put this world to rights, there is hope for this world. Sin is putting himself in the place of, is man putting himself in the place of God, but salvation is God putting himself in the place of man. The religion of the Pharisees is where the law is easily kept and transgressions of the law are easily balanced out. And many people follow that religion today under a variety of names. People might not say it's the religion of the Pharisees. They might say, you know, doctrine doesn't really matter. What matters is living a good life. What they're saying is doctrine, of course. That is doctrine. It's a doctrine of salvation by good works rather than grace. A doctrine that assumes that you don't need a Savior and that you are already living pretty much as you should. But the true doctrine says, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, or else there's no hope. And so that is what's going on. This man, where is he from? He is the Lord from heaven. Where is he going? To the cross. And why? Because that is the only way that things can ever be put to right, that he might be both just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. But now the question, of course, is, so what? So what? How does that change anything in your life or in the world? Well, I could begin by giving you the old Heidelberg Catechism with a nice summary of this. Question 52. What comfort is it to you to know that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead? Answer, that I with uplifted head do look 
to come from heaven as judge, the very same one who before offered himself to God on my behalf for my sins, who has removed all curse from me. As we've already considered today, there's a tremendous relief and comfort to know that the one who comes again to judge is the one who is the victim of that judgment already for my sins and yours and has removed that curse. For there at the cross, God's love and God's justice have met. Psalm 85, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. And the cross, therefore, proves beyond a shadow of the doubt that justice will be done in this world. The cross also proves beyond a shadow of the doubt that this world is in the hands of a most merciful, compassionate, and tender-hearted God that wouldn't simply crush us. And this is our boast, that the cross proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that this world that we live in is in the hands of such a compassionate, gracious, tender-hearted, loving God. J.C. Rao puts it so beautifully, and allow me to quote, other religions have laws and moral precepts, forms and ceremonies, rewards and punishments. But other religions can tell us nothing of a dying Savior. They cannot show us a cross. And the longer I dwell on the crucifixion in my thoughts, the more I am satisfied that there is more to be learned at Calvary than anywhere else in the world. Would I know the length and breadth of God the Father's love? I know that the Father loves us because He did not withhold from us His Son, His only Son. I might sometimes think that God the Father is too high and holy to care for such a miserable, corrupt creatures as we are, but I cannot, must not, dare not think that when I look at the cross of Christ. What I know how exceedingly sinful and abominable sin is in the sight of God. I look at the cross of Christ. I there see sin is so black and damnable that nothing but the blood of God's own Son could wash it away. Ah, if I listened to the wretched talk of proud men, I might sometimes fancy that sin was not very sinful. But I cannot think little of sin when I look at the cross of Christ. And would I find strong reasons for being a holy man? Shall I listen to the Ten Commandments merely? Shall I meditate on the rewards of heaven and the punishments of hell? Is there no stronger motive still? Yes. I will look at the cross of Christ, and there I see the love of Christ constraining me not to live for myself, but for Him. For there I see that I am not my own now. I'm bought with a price. There I see that Jesus has given himself for me, not only to redeem me from all iniquity, but also to purify me and make me one of his peculiar people, zealous for good works. Ah, there is nothing so sanctifying as the clear view of the cross of Christ. And it crucifies the world to us and us to the world. How can we love sin when we remember that it's because of our sins that Jesus died? Surely none ought to be so holy as the disciples of a crucified Lord. He goes on, actually, in a marvelous little tract called Christ Crucified to think of all the ways, this way and that way and the other, in which this teaches us 
the very heart and marrow of all theology and lays it upon our hearts so deeply. And this is why Christ crucified is not just our redemption, but the wisdom of God, so simple and yet so powerful. That cross humbles us. It lowers our pride. It puts our sins against each other in proper perspective. It reminds us of the great depths of our sinfulness against God, but also the greater depths to which Christ has descended in order that they might now be freely forgiven. The cross reminds us that we need a great redemption, and it assures us that a very great redemption indeed has come for us despite all that we are doing, all that we have done, all that we will do. The cross speaks beautiful words of peace and comfort and assures us that God has loved us while we were yet his enemies. And the cross fills us with thankfulness and joy and affection and wonder and is the pulpit of God's love to be preached to us. The cross is the final demonstration of an eternal, unchangeable love that's been lavished on us so that nothing can separate us from it, as we read earlier. Love itself has come from heaven and gone to the cross to conquer death. All this for you and for me that didn't deserve any of the Lord's mercies. And the cross assures us that the Almighty is therefore for us and that the words cannot describe how all the words in the world cannot describe how surpassingly wonderful is this one fact, that though the wages of sin is death, and that's a terrible thing, that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, and that is a true hope. I warn you, a salvation that could be earned by good works and a little moral effort, that will make you worse. That will make you worse, people. That might give hope to the strong and accomplished and privileged among us, but salvation that is of pure grace, well, if anything, that favors the weak, the poor in spirit, the mourners, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, Jesus says. People today, with all the terrorism in the world and everything, they they warn that religion, religion is a terrible thing that makes people proud, and harsh, and even violent. But when you hear that, you must ask just what religion we're talking about. I mean, yes, believing in absolute truth can be used to oppress others. But what if the absolute truth that we believe is that a man has died for his enemies, not responding to violence with violence, but forgiving them in love, and that this man was our maker? That changes things. That absolute truth changes things. If you want to call somebody that believes that a fundamentalist, well, that's a pretty good fundamental truth, isn't it? One scholar, Bauckham, writes, the belief in the story of salvation, sorry, uh, (laughs) belief in the story of salvation breaks the cycle by which the oppressed become the oppressors in turn. And he he points out, you know, in Israel, God's people were constantly warned, do not oppress the stranger or the foreigner. Remember, you were foreigners. You were strangers in Egypt. The memory of Israel's salvation from slavery, not by their power, but by God's grace, 
would serve to radically undermine their inclination to dominate others. But now, of course, supremely, the cross preaches to us a, a whole new deliverance, a new, humble, gracious, peacemaking, Jesus says, forgiving way of life, reminding us that the price of redemption has been paid. But don't forget, you were a slave. You were strangers from the house of God. Don't forget who you were. Now, my children, let this truth fill your life and horizon. Jesus says, greater love has no man than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Religion, of course, can make people worse. Just ask the Pharisees. A religion... Religion can become the place, I guess religion is the place, where there is this ultimate battle between human pride and God's grace. And people take sides on this. And people want a religion of human pride. Of I can do it and I'm not so bad. And that, if you believe that, that will become a powerful instrument not only of pride, but sin. But insofar as we are humbled and receive God's gracious love, we are surrendering to something that not only makes us better toward others, but that fills our hearts with love toward Him. And it puts all of the rest of life then in proper perspective and who we are and what we have received and what we have become by grace, children of God through faith in Jesus. And to the degree that you begin to love Him supremely, all the other things in your life begin to fall into proper place. Instead of looking at the things of this world even as the deepest source of contentment, you can enjoy them for what they are, but they are not your source of safety and contentment and joy anymore, ultimately. He is. And this is why the cross matters so much to everything. Everything. In conclusion, the 18th century uh, Danish Lutherans began missionary work in Greenland among the native inhabitants there. It turned out to be pretty tough sledding, hard, slow work. Um, they, they, they found the Greenlanders uh, a stubborn and unwilling people. They did learn the Greenlandic language. They started work. They went for years and saw very, very little fruit. They were followed later by some Moravian missionaries who also found the work just as difficult. But there was this theory that was very strong in the 18th century, even among the more evangelical church, a theory that you should begin at the beginning with God the creator and lawgiver and judge, and to lay a foundation. And then when people started responding to those terrors of the law, then you could see God at work and you'd be able to give them the gospel of grace. For you church historians out there, it was preparationism, which I poorly described, but that was still in fashion, wanting to preach the righteousness of God and the condemnation of the law until they saw people under conviction. And so for years, for years, they sought to bring these Greenlanders under conviction, preaching the character of God and the strength of the law and his, the fierceness of his holiness and the wrath of his judgment and the judgment day that awaited all human sin. And they preached it and they preached it and they, as I say, had precious little success. People just simply weren't coming under conviction. 
and they had little interest in hearing any more about the wrath and judgment of God. But in the year 1740, they decided to change their approach. It's the days of the marrow, by the way, and the beginning of our church. And some of these ideas were again coming to the fore in the free offer. It's not that they neglected the law, but they came right out and preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And immediately, they started reaching the hearts of their hearers in large numbers. Many people were converted and their lives radically changed. And the astonishing thing to the missionaries is that these new Christians, virtually on their own, began to forsake the sins of their culture and started living radically new lives of purity and self-denial and love. The, the, the missionaries had thought that if they hadn't brought the conviction of sin with all the holiness and justice and law of God, that Christ would be of no use. And there's a truth to that. But something happened to them when they heard about the love and grace and mercy of God, something that reached them, where all the preaching of the law for all those years did not. But when they heard of a a God of love who gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believed in Him might have everlasting life, when they heard about the love of Christ that had the power to constrain them, of a shepherd who'd laid down his life in love for the sheep, one who offered himself up a sacrifice, the maker for the creature, taking their place, suffering their punishment, that as man has put himself in the place of God, that God will put himself in the place of man and suffer and die that we might live. Their hearts responded in love. And so it's written, we love him because he first loved us. What does it say? 1 Corinthians 15. This will be a good text to end on. The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for opening your very heart to us through these words that you have spoken. We praise you for the spirit that illuminates our understanding and indeed constrains our wills and opens our hearts in glad response to the truth And we pray that we would feel ourselves to be the very paper on which you write the words of this gospel, that the cross of Christ should be our boast, that by which the world is crucified to us and we to the world, that your grace might do something more in us today than it has done in the past, that through the ministry of this, your gospel, that there will be something in us that will last for all eternity as a result, that you would bear new fruit in our lives. And through the rest of our days, we pray that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, might be with us, the Lord from heaven, in the place of sinful man.